Welcome to Three Little Things, a natural health podcast. We've created this space to help you positively navigate the world of holistic and natural well-being, where each week we will explore something new and dive into a diverse range of holistic health topics from all walks of life. As chiropractors, we're equally passionate about helping educate, share and empower you on your well-being journey. Created with you in mind, Three Little Things aims to bring you digestible topics and applicable tools and strategies to help you grow, thrive, and live well. So let's dive in. Well, welcome back to all of our listeners for another episode on the Three Little Things podcast. Um, As always, we are really excited to be here recording another episode to bring to you guys some cool information that you can take into your day. Um, And we have Dr. Bill back for another episode. Dr. Bill was on our episode 20, so if you haven't listened to that one, definitely head back and check it out. Um, And we're really excited for today's episode. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into pediatric airways, pediatric sleep, um, and we're going to chat about some some common uh, things that you might see in your kitties um, and a bit of a, I guess, insight into how Dr. Bill deals with these things and and what he sees on a daily basis. So Lily, do you want to sort of maybe pre-frame the episode a little bit for us? So we had Dr. Bill here, what episode was it, Sarah? 20. 20, and it was a really popular episode. We had so many people asking us about how to progress through um, the various issues that Dr. Bill was talking about. So um, here he is again, and one thing I really got from you last time, Bill, was um, the breathing pattern and the bulk number and um, expiration time and breathing slowly and up to six respirations per minute and I've done it with a few patients and I've watched mm. their PO2 levels go, go from say 96 to 99 quickly but not only that their pulse rate come down from say around 80 to around 65 so that was pretty exciting powerful to see. physiology yeah. isn't it yeah thank really. you it's interesting how you can increase your oxygen level with slower breathing mm. yeah it doesn't make sense no but, but I think when you does. when you and like Sam's Lily when we're teaching patients how to do that everything in their physiology changes mm. as well yeah. you know not Bagel even just tone, in the moment yeah. like you know you're showing them some really amazing measures then and there but yeah as they take it away into their day it's the pretty powerful the system it changes the ph of your blood mm. yeah you know the, the sympathetic parasympathetic balance that we talked Perfect. about yes homostasis. yeah and, and the nitrous oxide levels you know in the anterior nares and um the co2 set levels in the bloodstream i mean all that just made so much sense so yeah we do encourage our um, listeners to go back to that episode and, and yes. hear it properly absolutely yeah. Yeah. Mm. um and i guess that preframes us nicely talking about breathing um so we're going to play a little bit of an audio that um dr bill has permission from a patient to be able to use um and then we're going to i guess dive into what that is and um what it sounds like so take a listen for a second um to this little audio on breathing from that incredibly loud snoring that was a three-year-old patient I've seen recently whose parents were concerned about the child's sleep and the fact that it had been restless sleep and poor sleep and, and, and as we'll talk as we go through the discussion this is a mid-range breathing issue so that patient didn't have apneas which we'll talk about but you can hear how hard that the child was breathing against the restricted airway and that means their skeletal muscle is not resting at night so hence the need for us to talk about this and look at all the treatment options. 
Uh, and so I suppose with, with paediatric airway issues, we go back to the pillars of health, which, as we talked about in our last episode with sleep, nutrition, managing stress, the need for community and movement. And so obviously today we're gonna to be focusing on sleep and sleep disordered breathing and how the airway affects the quality and depth of sleep. Um, as you know, we're in the, hopefully in the latter stages of our COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. And a recent study done at the Children's Hospital in Melbourne showed uh, that the kids have felt the stress of COVID. They've had increased levels of stress. They've been moving less. They've had less community. They've had more time on screens. Um, and this is you know, adding to other sleep problems. So it's been a tough time for even their young kids. This is zero to five age group. Yeah. Clearly shown that they've, they're the struggles they've had through COVID. Mm. Anxiety levels have gone through the roof, haven't they? Absolutely. Yeah, so I had a young kid in here probably about a year and a half ago just when it was all kicking off and he was lying on the table having adjustment and we're doing some lymphatic drainage. Um, I said to the seven-year-old's mother, um, you know, he's just got a little virus actually. It's not nothing too, you know, exciting. And the kid just leapt off the table and said, virus, mom, mom, she said the word virus. Mm. <laughs> yeah, oh, and no. I thought, wow. There's so much talk about it. Yeah, mm. it really hit the poor kid. So I hope yeah. this year he's not so stressed about the word virus. Absolutely, yeah. And even just on in its simplest form, you know, when we are feeling stressed, our breathing rate changes and our breathing patterns change. And that in its even in its simplest form, um, you know, I'm sure that little kid, that little patient that you're talking about, Lily, I'm sure his breathing patterns were mm. completely different to what they would have been if he was very calm and not triggered by even just the word virus, let alone having had COVID um, or having had a virus. Yeah. yeah. And today we're talking about um, paediatric breathing, which is really appropriate because um, as adults, we've, we have so many bad habits and did these habits form when we were little, do you think, Bill? Mm. And, Absolutely. Mm. Look, I mean, the way we breathe as children affects our facial development. It affects how how our teeth develop and the shape of our jaws and our faces for the rest of our lives. So diving into the actual spectrum of sleep disordered breathing, I think the most important thing that our listeners need to know is that sleep disordered breathing in children, as in adults, is a spectrum. And so it's normal for a child to breathe quietly in bed at night with their mouth closed. And generally having, we all move in bed, but generally a restless sleep, a restful sleep and often a deep sleep. And then airway issues, if they start, some kids can just be mouth breathers and be quite quiet. And then we might move on to a noisy mouth breather. Then we might have a child who's snoring. And then the worst form of sleep disorder breathing in kids is actually sleep apnea. Mm. So this is when the child, some of them are usually heavy snorers and they have periods where they stop and start. And the video we, or the audio we heard earlier, there, there wasn't any apneas in that, but, but that was defined as heavy snoring. And in terms of the frequency of this problem, so 20% of kids snore, and, and definitely you know, a proportion of that snoring is what we call benign snoring, so not significantly affecting their health, but 4% of children have sleep apnea. So in three classes in a primary school mm. of 33 kids or thereabouts, there'll be four children on average with, with OSA. Mm. So it's not an uncommon condition. So before we come to the pathology of it, Bill, um, we see a lot of kids in here who um, thumb suck and have open yeah. bites. Do you want to comment whether it's a structural thing or a, a functional well, thing? Well, I, I suppose you know thumb sucking is not good for dental or facial development, and and I think it's probably a standalone issue that could be could be related 
with sleep disorder breathing, but may not be. And so, you've, you know, obviously you try and control the thumb sucking because if it's all through the night, it's really, mm. you know, it's going to be bringing that lower jaw down. We want, you know, when kids are sleeping with their mouth closed, the tongue, which is a very powerful muscle, is sitting up behind the top teeth and that it exerts a pressure of 500 grams on the top teeth, which helps the, the maxilla or the upper jaw to expand and it helps the lower jaw to grow forward. Mm. Um, and so I don't think there's a connection between thumb sucking and airway problems, but the two together are additive in their negative effect on facial development. Yeah, and just continuing on with that, because I know that patients ask me um, this question a lot, is that why is mouth breathing bad, basically? Bad. Well, yeah. look, it's, you know, going back to episode 20, it's an inefficient way to breathe. Yeah. It's a, um, we don't oxygenate our bodies well. And, um, you know, for exercise, it's very inefficient. And for sleep, um, so even even consistent mouth breathing is going to have effects on the teeth, mm. on the dentition. So changes we see, we have higher rates of dental caries. We have enamel changes. So um, the number of times I look at the nurses in, in our operating theatre and say, check out these teeth, look what the mouth breathing's done. We see these discoloured, crowded teeth with a high arching of the palate. And our dental colleagues are very aware of this now. And we have a, a lot of cross-referral from dentists, mm. you know, saying, look, I've got this child that I know they're gonna need orthodontics, but I'm really concerned that their mouth breathing is affecting their dental development. And the dentists send them over and we go through the process of assessment, which we'll talk about as we mm. move forward on this topic. Mm. Yeah. So we'll hear more about um, the causes of um, mouth breathing. Yeah, the the symptoms, yeah, That's right. Um, however, do you want to quickly comment about the use of dummies, or is that a moot point? The dummies. Yeah. Well, look, um, I'm not an expert. It's probably in the same realm as thumb sucking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I, you know, when the chips are down at two o'clock in the morning, put the damn thing in, and everyone gets some sleep. <laughs> but there probably comes a time when Santa Claus needs to take the dummy, and um, you know, obviously that's a family to family discussion. And again, I think it's just an additive, an added negative in facial development. Yeah. But, you know, we've all been there and done that. <clears throat> I know our kids had them for short periods of time. Mm. Awesome. Well, I guess, I think that was, yeah, really beneficial for our listeners to hear, one, that sleep disordered breathing is on a spectrum. Yeah. Um, and you touched before, um, just before we hit record, about one of the big things that, and we, I know we'll get to it in more depth, but one of the big things that parents can do is observe and listen yep. um, and watch their children breathe. Um, and would you say it's equally as important during the day as it is during the night to really get a good understanding of their child's breathing yeah, patterns? You know, I th- yeah, I think both, both times are important. So that leads us into, so what are the symptoms of, mm. of sleep disordered breathing? So obviously observing our kids during sleep is a fantastic barometer for the parents. It's a cheap, easy thing <laughs> to do. And I often say to the parents, when you're doing your lap of honour at night, mm. you know, checking mm. on the kids, pop in and, and, and just and observe. And some nights they'll be tucked under the, under the sheets, um, but we're looking, the, the parents are looking to see whether the child's snoring or breathing quietly, whether their mouth is open or closed, whether they're restless sleepers, are they waking at night? Because the very young kids with sleep disordered breathing wake frequently for unknown reasons. They almost sit up in bed and rub their eyes and they don't know why they've woken up. It's because their airways woken them up. Mm. So kids with the, you know, in the, in the moderate to severe end of the spectrum, they're not entering a deep sleep because they've got an airway compromise. The muscles of the airway relax during deep sleep and the muscles relax, the airway collapses and blocks. And so therefore the, the brain has to keep waking the child 
to re-establish the airway to, to establish respiration. So these kids are going in and out of a shallow sleep mm. and the parents will observe that um, because the proper way to sleep for kids and adults is to go to sleep, get into a deep sleep where we get refreshed and we're less likely to wake out of that deeper sleep and then wake up. Mm. And so that's right. the, they're the cardinal sort of symptoms. Bedwetting is more common. Mm. And so bedwetting that goes on is often associated with sleep disorder breathing. Uh, some kids will wake up with headaches and there's also behavioural disturbance. So kids that are having a poor quality shallow sleep at night are not going to be behaving as well as a child who's had a relaxed deep sleep. Hmm. Okay, so in the absence of um, actual mechanical blockage, so you will come to things like tonsils and adenoids and so on. Yep. Do you feel some children actually um, have copied a habit from the people around them, you know? I mean, or is mouth breathing solely a, a mechanical um, uh, Look, it's usually, yeah, it's not something that I think they would copy. I mean, they may inherit some genetic facial features that could predispose them to it. But I think normally mouth breathing has an underlying cause. Okay. And, and the common causes would be things like hay fever, allergies, recurrent viral infections. So daycare attendance is a mm. risk factor, mm. which we'll go okay. into later. And then also enlargement of the adenoids and tonsils. And we'll definitely talk about that in more detail. But the adenoids and tonsils are areas of lymphoid tissue. The tonsils can be seen through the mouth. The adenoids live in the back of the nose. And they're what we call lymphoid tissue. So their function is to present viruses, bacteria, and the outside world to our immune system. But during that process of presenting that to the immune system, they can hypertrophy or expand to a point where they start to cause pathological breathing issues mm. that are in that spectrum. Mm. Just out of curiosity, more for my benefit than the mm. listeners right now, um, are you seeing an increase in that post-COVID? Uh, I think the answer is only a guesstimate but I yep. think the answer would probably be no yeah okay um, because the interesting thing about COVID is that the kids actually had less general viral infection yes yeah so they were at home protected relatively yeah and I'm not saying that was a great thing for them because there was a lot of negatives yeah um, but they actually the daycare exposure was a lot less yeah the school exposure was a lot less the influenza rate was lower mm. so I think the answer is probably if anything we've seen less yeah yeah very interesting so in the absence of um, mechanical obstruction, you know, say, um, or allergies or tonsils or adenoids, is there another way of um, getting the children to close their mouths during sleep or during the daytime? Or are we saying it's only well, look, we can definitely of, um, remind kids mm. and we can work with them. And um, but, but most kids will naturally want to breathe through their nose. I mean, it's the natural way for a baby to breathe and it's the natural way for a child to breathe. So it's not often... You know, we will get some kids, for example, that might have had enlarged adenoids when they were between the ages of two and five. Mm. And adenoids do shrink as we get as the kids get older, naturally. So if those adenoids have shrunk, we might see a six or seven year old who's had a lot of issues and was a heavy snorer for three or four years, but now the snoring's reduced, but there could be a habitual hangover. Mm, right. So that yeah. would probably be the only situation where we'd see that. Otherwise there's usually an underlying cause. Interesting. Okay, but you know mm. yeah. right. So the adenoids do shrink with time? Yes. Okay. Yeah. To the point of atrophy or just getting Well, it's smaller? just a natural thing. I suppose as our immune system develops, mm. it's less, there's less surprises for it. So it starts mm. to settle, you know, you just get less response. So the adenoid tissue naturally shrinks. Yep. So around five, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. yeah around the age of five, they, they naturally start to reduce. Interesting. Tonsils probably less so. Yeah. Mm. 
because I was yeah. doing the, when I was doing my pediatric mouses, there was an interesting graph they put up where different tissues were at exponential um, growth at various times in our lives. You know, so let's say skeletal tissue, muscle tissue around adolescence. You know, there was um, going through the roof. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. But um, immune tissue was between naught and five. Exactly. Well, mm. that exactly yeah. correlates with the yeah. Interesting. You know, the the adenoids and tonsils. Very cool. Yeah, it's very cool. <laughs> so I guess that leads us into risk factors for some of this stuff. Yeah, so look, um, obviously allergies are a risk factor, and we'll talk about that probably in another episode with a bit of luck. Um, obesity is an increasing issue, and um, and, there's, and obviously Australia's not far behind the US in, in childhood obesity, and obviously it's quite variable depending on the, you know, the, the parts of Australia mm-hmm. you live in. Um, but, but obesity is one of the causes of failure of surgical treatment, and we'll talk about surgical treatment. But um, uh, obviously, when we when, we've, when kids are obese, they are you know they don't move as well. They also, when we carry extra weight, we don't just carry it on our hips and, and abdomen, but we carry it in our neck. And so, if you've got a child with enlarged adenoids and tonsils, and some of them are so fat that their necks are, are pushing mm-hmm. down on the airway, so that's a, a contributor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's obviously really important to look at kids' diet, um, and daycare attendance does, particularly in the under threes, definitely increases the viral load, and so that that definitely increases incidence of sleep disorder breathing as well. Um, and um, yeah, there's a few. I did a bit of reading before this podcast about daycare attendance, and some of the interesting facts I found was, firstly, the average number of viral infections per year in a child in the zero three range who's not in daycare is about six. And the kid in the daycare environment, it's more in the 12 to 14. So wow. we're looking at a more than, greater than two times increase in viral load. Mm. And obviously when we're talking about lymphoid tissue constantly infected, mm. then, you know, unfortunately, particularly the bigger daycares, mm. um, I think atopic kids in daycare have more sickness. So if you're from a family of eczema and asthma and allergies, and those kids get a viral infection, they cough for longer, mm. their nose gets more congested. So the atopic families, in my experience, don't do as well in daycare. Mm. Um, and I think they also found some studies showing the quality of daycare makes a huge difference to the outcomes. So the, the staff to children ratio, the food, the hygiene, the, the, um, the rules about isolation when kids are sick. Mm. So they have a huge, you know, um, Effect on the uh, the overall health of kids in daycare, and obviously, mm. I see a lot of kids with with having the, the downside of daycare. Yeah, particularly at zero three. Another interesting um, fact is vitamin D. Yeah, so vitamin D is a crucial vitamin for immune function, and because kids are spending more time indoors now, particularly with COVID, vitamin D is secreted by sun exposure. There's a lot of kids out there with low vitamin D, so they've got low immune function, and um, in terms of a few hacks for the parents of kids <laughs> that are struggling in daycare, I think oral vitamin D is an absolute no-brainer. Yep. You can buy it from the pharmacy um, and it can even be given to breastfeeding children. Yeah. And do you have a um, sort of recommended dose or...? Well, it's actually, because it's a vitamin, mm. um, it just is as directed on the okay. packaging. Yeah. Um, but, but vitamin D is a really great thing. Also, foods that can boost immune function. I think you guys talked about this in your inflammation yeah, podcast we did. late last year. Yeah. And so, oranges, grapefruit, 
blueberries, apples and pears. Yeah. So again, kids intake here, they need immune boosting. And the other, I mean, obviously daycare has its benefits, but some kids just get hammered by it. Mm. And there are alternatives. So family daycare, for example, that's rather than a room of 20 kids, family daycare might have four or five kids. So less numbers, it's less viral load. Yeah. Um, and also I think in our community, in our Western society, as you've talked about in other podcasts, <laughs> really about community. Mm. And another option if kids are really not doing well in daycare is we have a lot of elderly um, neighbours who are on their own a lot and some of them are in apartments and they're quite um, lonely. And mm. some of those people might be fantastic carers for kids and, and you pay $130 a day for daycare. <laughs> at least. And at least. Yeah. And there might be some, I'm sure, I mean, we, did, we did that for our kids when they were young. We had a lovely local elderly lady who, who was their nanny and mm, we yeah. paid them in a similar sort of Same, cost yeah. structure and yeah. that was a meaningful relationship. There was no viral load and the zero to three age group don't get a lot of social benefit from daycare mm. yeah. because they can't relate to more than one person. Most, maybe the two and a half year olds can. Yeah. But those, you know, that sort of nine months to two years, they only really need a, you know, a face mm. and one person. So I don't think there's a social loss yeah. from a smaller people exposure. And there's definitely some health benefits and that's scientifically proven. Yeah. And that's really cool, that full discussion, because it brings us back to the pillars of health, which you talked about at the beginning of this episode, but also in episode 20 and the triad of health that we bring up every episode. And it's that mm. real dynamic approach to healthcare. Um, mm. You know, it's not just one solution, but there's a, a contributing factor of multiple. Um, yeah. And I think that that daycare example kind and of highlights the financial pressures in our modern society yeah. that we know we need two <clears throat> incomes to survive in a lot of parts of Australia. But these are some hopefully some useful hacks for people to think outside the box, and mm. because the the health the health implications often spread through the family. Everyone's getting home late. We're mm. rushing dinner. Everyone gets sick. And it can become very stressful and exhausting. Yeah. And it can have a real negative impact on quality of life for young, some young families. So mm. to look at the alternatives around us is a good thing. Actually, it's a good episode to have followed um, Dr. Matt's episode. Mm. So we had a, a evolutionary psychologist speak last week. You might have heard his podcast, Bill. And I did, actually. Yeah, it was excellent. <laughs> some of these, episodes, some of these um, theories um, come straight through to this one, actually, which is um, mm. what you're talking about. Um, but then just one step, half step back, you did mention the word obesity, which I think is actually a very interesting word because um, it's such a difficult word to say sometimes to a, a small child yeah. mm. who is clearly obese. Or even more to their parents as well, you know. That's exactly. There's a bit of a... Well, look, it's not a word that I use in my practice. Yeah. Mm. And, and from my reading on this area, it's a matter of just gently explaining to the parents that, you know, that, you know, you, you know, your child's probably a bit overweight and they're all aware of it. Yeah. And you say that, and I think the way to look at it is we don't want the child to lose weight, we want them to grow into their weight. Mm. Ah, nicely That's the put. Approach. And, yes. and the things we encourage them is to, is to when, they're having, when they're having drinks, they have water. Mm. I mean, a Gatorade has got 16 teaspoons of sugar. Mm. And orange okay. juice and apple That's juice poisonous. is full of sugar. Yeah. 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 So, there's, oh. so we've got to increase the kids' movement. We've got to educate them and we've got to let them grow into their weight not by being on a diet but by shifting to a healthier diet more movement mm. i think that's a nice shift too you know you're shifting away from necessarily the weight approach and more about the nutritional benefit of 
better food. Absolutely. Um, which I think is a nice divide. Benefit. Yeah, exactly. It's a benefit. it's a nicer divide than you know your kids overweight. Just words are it's, so isn't it? Out there, you know? Yeah. I mean, growing into their weight. I love that yeah. because mm. that actually makes a lot of sense because we have seen kids um, virtually do that. You know, mm. absolutely. They, mm. Yeah, they grow into their head size too. We've noticed. You know, <laughs> exactly. Hard, yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> Thank you. So then um, you're going on to tell us about um, referrals and how they come to see you. Yeah, so I thought it'd be good just to run through how we assess patients if they are referred with sleep disorder breathing. So mm -hmm. obviously the referrals are often via a dentist or a GP and obviously that's our listeners' first port of call to discuss it and it's always good to get their dentist to give them advice. They can say, look, I'm worried my child might be a mouth breather. While you're doing their dental checkup, do you mind just see if there's any signs of mouth breathing from your perspective? Mm. And um, GPs are always interested. And, and if I do see kids, I always want to talk to the parents about, you know, tell us about your child's sleep. Are they snorers? If they have been a snorer, what's the time frame? You know, because obviously when we're making decisions, we don't make a decision about a child who's been a snorer for a month. Yeah. We make a decision in a child who's been a snorer over 12 to 18 months or often years. Mm. Um, you want to know about the child's quality of sleep, whether they're frequently waking. You want to know if there's been any concomitant hearing or ear issues. Has there been a history of tonsillitis? Is, are you an atopic family? Mm. And if the mums are always saying, can we, can we blame the father? Has, you, <laughs> has your husband got allergies? And usually they say yes. And he snores. Yeah. And I'll never get him to come and see you. <laughs> That's the usual approach. Um, yeah, so they're the general medical things we look at. And then obviously we move on to examination. So we look at the posture of the child. Mouth breathers tend to have a head forward posture. Yeah. That's one of the postural things we see in mouth breathing. We examine the child's ears to look if there's any sign of glue ear or ear infections. We look at their oral examination, look at their teeth, their facial structure. We look at whether there's crowding of their teeth. Mm -hmm. We look at the tonsils. We've got a grading system of tonsils from zero to four. The grade one tonsils are tiny, you can hardly see them. If you look in the back of the child's throat, you see the McDonald's, the big M. Yep. The, the, the dangly bit is the uvula, and there should be a good space under the dangly bit. For the, and the small tonsils will be sitting more laterally or to the side of the back of the throat. But the bigger the tonsils, the closer they are to yep. the middle of the M. Mm, okay. um, and grade four tonsils are like little golf balls that sit in the back of the throat. And when that child goes to sleep, they're the ones that really can do the apneas and the, mm. the heavy snoring. Um, we do have a flexible scope in our room, so we've got a little fibre optic scope that's about 2.5 millimetres in diameter, and, that, and with the use of a see-through lolly jar oh. as our major um, bribery tool. Yeah. And so often, Johnny's sitting there with his mouth closed, can I check your tonsils, Johnny? And it's like, mm -mm, no way, Jose. <laughs> but when the little lolly jar comes up with full of brimming full of snakes, organic snakes they are, fortunately, <laughs> Um, suddenly, the, suddenly the mouth will open and the tonsils mm. will be on view and we and a lot of kids will tolerate a 2.5mm a fibroscope mm. placed very gently into their nasal cavity. We don't always do it and, we, and if the child's very nervous, whatever, we won't do it. There's, there's ways to, to work around it but it, we, it's, we can only really see the abnormalities using a scope. Mm. Sometimes we'll go on to do an x-ray which we'll talk about in a moment. So. And we're kind of all used to that now, aren't we, with uh, COVID yeah, exactly. tests? We've had worse, haven't exactly. we? Yeah. <laughs> but that's a bit of a two-edged sword because some of the kids are worried it's another COVID oh, test. Oh yeah, right? I bet. Yeah. Um, so then, once we've examined the kids and we've got, I've got an idea of what's going on. Then we, I think, I talk to the parents. Well, what investigations do we need to do? So mm. the first investigation is parental observation. So let's look at this closely. Most parents don't have a. Some parents have a really good idea of what's been going on. And they'll 
they'll show me a video of yeah, mm. we do the secretaries do encourage the, the, the parents to bring in recordings but it's not always available but if, if that hasn't been done I say the first thing you do is get you to observe over a six eight week period and then you're going to bring back some video recordings mm. um, and, and audio so sometimes kids if they've got sleepy sort of breathing they'll wake up with the slightest light so sometimes audio is enough but um, the smartphone is something that wasn't available when I trained <laughs> but it's a, it's a very powerful tool uh, a lateral airways x-ray a lateral cap you guys would be aware of that in the mm-hmm. chiropractic world that in a child that won't tolerate a flexible scope it gives an idea of the size of the adenoid relative to the back of the nose um, some kids with sleep disordered breathing will go on and have a formal pediatric sleep study. Yeah. So that's done under the care of a pediatric physician who specialises in sleep disordered medicine in children. And that does involve going to a hospital and, and being hooked up to equipment. And, and we, we generally don't need to do that all that often because some kids clearly don't have sleep apnea and we can look at their treatment without it. Um, there's other kids that are healthy and they've got grade four tonsils and they've got video recordings showing severe sleep apnea they don't need a sleep study mm. because we know what's You've going a, on. Yeah. There's other kids, so it might be a child who's got who's got a syndrome, or there might be a child who's got a bleeding disorder, for which surgery would be a greater risk. Mm. Or I might see a child and I look there, I see look, there's tiny tonsils there, um, there's no allergies, and mum says the child's a terrible sleeper, they're having apneas. And I'll say, right, your child needs a sleep sleep study because I can't see a physical cause. Yeah. And so we need to study the sleep in more detail. There is a condition called central sleep apnea, and that's where the child has apnea because the drive to breathe from the brain is reduced, mm. and that's treated by the sleep physicians. Mm. So that's a non-obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah. So it's those sort of kids that we think, right, your child needs a sleep study, and we'll refer them off to a pediatrician who specialises in that field. Mm. Very cool. And then I guess from there you go into the management stuff, right? How do we, yeah, yeah how do so we treat this? So this is a multi-pronged approach, obviously. So in children that are very overweight, we talk about growing to their weight and the things we've just discussed in the very atopic families. So if I see kids with a lot of swelling in the front of their nose because of allergies, we say, well, what are our options to manage that? And they include things like allergy testing, mm-hmm. allergy avoidance, mm-hmm. desensitization. We might go into some more detail in future podcasts. Um, topical steroid sprays, like some parents will not be interested in any form of steroid spray, but they are very safe mm. and not absorbed into the body. And a steroid spray, um, such as Nasonex, I'll mention the name, it's available over the counter now. Um, it's not absorbed into the body. And what the steroid spray does, and this can be used down into the you know two or three year age group without medical supervision, the, the steroid spray is sprayed into the nose and it it acts to reduce the allergic response in the lining of the nose and over a number of days of usage that leads to inferior turbulence becoming less swollen and it can open the airway up mm-hmm. and if these kids respond to these sprays they don't have to use them all the time they can use pulse therapy mm-hmm. so if you use a spray regularly for a week or two and if you stop using it there might be a hangover of a week or two of ongoing benefit yeah so so we definitely address allergies if they're an issue we also look at sleep hygiene Mm-hmm. to make sure the kids are going to bed at an appropriate time, to make sure they're having screen-free time before sleep. We make sure that they're not having food and drink that's going to stimulate them, like mm. chocolate, mm. you know, half an hour before bed. Yeah. So we look at the sleep hygiene and try and... It's important that kids have a routine. Mm. You know, kids need to, you know, know when the stages of, you know, dinner, bath, book, bed, whatever it is for each family. Yeah. 
and that I think that can help a lot. We talk about um, hacks for daycare attendance and improving immune function. Uh, some patients I'll recommend a dental assessment mm -hmm. um, because there is a thing called expansile orthodontics. So in these kids with the crowded upper dentition, these days orth orthodontists attending um, a generation ago, Lily, when we were having orthodontic assessment, <laughs> it was all about pulling teeth out and bringing them together. Yeah. Now orthodontic treatment is all about expansion. Yeah. Yeah. So expand the jaw to make room for the teeth. Mm. So if I see a child who doesn't have, you know, I'll always say, look, talk to your dentist. You know, th this expansion can start young, younger than your traditional mm. braces where teeth are removed. And mm. so I see kids that are quite young, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, with expanders in their palate and their and that will actually help their airway because if you expand the maxilla, the floor of the nose drops and the, and the nasal airway can open yeah. up. Our oldest child had that, you know, RME, rapid maxillary expansion. Exactly. Yeah, mm. so. so there's lots mm. of strings to the bow. Yeah, and just kind of on that, uh, a lot of our patients listening will often, you know, will often do an intraoral, um, some adjustments and some sort of palate spreading and stuff like that. And that's one of the biggest things that uh, we assess for and look for in our little patients is yeah that real narrow palate or you know mm. high palate or all those sorts of things so um yeah it's interesting isn't it it's, it's so, so powerful it's addressed as a kid because craniofacial development is generally complete by the age of 14 or 15 years yeah and so if your child has untreated mouth breathing right through adolescence and you keep saying no they're going to grow out of it they're going to grow out of yeah. it they're going to grow out of it and the orthodontist will be able to help matters um but it's actually better to get the airway corrected at a younger age and then encourage normal nasal breathing because then we've got the tongue up behind those teeth and it actually makes the orthodontist job easier. Mm. And if you have a, an, an adult who's had long-term mouth breathing that's never been treated, the risk of sleep apnea as an adult has increased because their lower jaw is not grown as far forward. Mm. And our tongue, which is a big ball of muscle, is attached yeah. to the inner aspect of our lower jaw. And if the lower jaw is closer to the back of the throat when you're an adult and you go to sleep, then your yeah. tongue collapses on your airway more easily. So yeah. we need to look at both the kids' long, short-term health and long-term health when we're looking at their craniofacial development. Mm. Um, so yeah. we've come to surgeries, um, Bill, because um, you did say that the adenoids, um, well, people sort of grow into their adenoids in the sense that they actually become smaller. Yep. Um, they are still removed though, aren't they, adenoids? At Absolutely. Stage, yeah. So look, surgery definitely has a role in sleep disordered breathing and we've touched on a lot of medical options but some kids just don't respond to medical treatment and so so there's three common procedures we offer and they are adenoidectomy which is just removal of the adenoids adenotonsillectomy which is removal of adenoids and tonsils and inferior turbinate reduction I'll just briefly run through them mm -hmm. um, so adenoidectomy would be reserved usually for the younger kids so we're not going to be likely to remove adults sorry adenoids in say a six or seven year old because they're likely to be shrinking yeah so Adenoidectomy might be more common in the in the in the eighteen month to three three and a half year old group when mm. they're really sleeping poorly. Mm. Adenoid enlarged adenoids increases the risk of ear problems, so they're more likely to have glue ear, speech delay, yeah. which we may talk about in a future podcast. Mm. Um, they're also more likely to have sleep, you know, very restless sleep. They're not sleeping through the night. And if they get a viral infection, their nose can remain snottier, and they can have much longer periods of nasal discharge because the adenoids can collect bacterial biofilm mm. and act as a reservoir for infection. So can, so these kids often don't clear their nasal airway as well as other kids between viruses. Mm. So the younger kids generally that are not having sleep apnea are the ones that generally are good candidates for adenoidectomy if all the other medical measures have failed. Mm. 
Adenotonsillectomy is most commonly done between the ages of say two and five. And these are the kids that have either chronic severe bacterial tonsillitis, or these are definitely at the more, se the more severe end of sleep disorder breathing. So these kids are having apneas. Yeah. So their videos and audios or their sleep study shows that they're not only snoring, they're actually stopping breathing. Mm. And some I've had parents that, that have to sleep with their kids and they're rolling them over and, yeah. and they're distraught sleeping yeah. next to them. And just it's so obvious what a significant problem it is. Yeah. Um, and adenotonsillectomy and adenoidectomy is often done as day surgery these days, but the tonsillectomy component adds, adds a lot of discomfort. Mm. So adenoidectomy kids often recover within two hours. If you have the tonsils removed, there is a seven to 10 day period of needing regular pain relief, etc. Now there is a very small risk related to a general anesthetic. There's about a 2% risk of post-operative bleeding, which is unavoidable. Um, there's definitely no long-term immune dysfunction associated with either adenoid or adenoid and tonsil removal because there's a huge ring of lymphoid tissue in the upper airway. Yep. So there's lymphoid tissue across the base of the tongue, around the edges of the mouth, yes, in the tonsils. And when we do an adenoidectomy, it's only ever a partial adenoidectomy. We have to leave mm. about 10% of the tissue there. Okay. So the parents don't need, if the kids do need to be considered for surgery, there's definitely no long-term immune dysfunction. The risks and, and issues are just related to having the surgery and having an anesthetic yeah. and, and the small risk of bleeding, which is all very manageable. Yeah. You know, it's, it's statistically more dangerous to drive to a hospital than to have a general <laughs> anesthetic. Yeah. So yeah. It doesn't mean you're rushing to surgery, but it's, uh, you know, in, in, with modern pediatric anaesthetics, it's a safe thing for the kids that need this surgery. Yeah. Um, and the last procedure to talk about is inferior turbinate reduction. So these are for the severely allergic kids with, you know, I see kids that literally sound like mess. They've got completely blocked nose. They can't even get the spray in the nose. There's mm. nowhere for it to go. Mm. And a lot of these kids have had allergy testing. They've got dust mite covers on their mattress. They've tried sprays. They've even been desensitized, which is a two or three year program. And these kids are sleeping so poorly. They're getting headaches. Their posture's mm. bad. They've got enamel changes on their teeth. They've got crowded dentition. We've tried everything. And from the youngest we'd consider that would be six or seven years. Um, but again, if we can correct this and improve it mm. at that age group, then they've got that decade of more normal breathing, which is beneficial to their school performance, their sleep quality, their dental development, um, and facial development. So, so it's a permanent thing, right? I mean, turbinates don't grow back, do they? Well, look, the incidence of revision surgery for turbinates in adults would be about 3 or 4%. Okay. And in a child, look, their nasal septum, which is the cartilage in the middle of the nose, is still growing. So if you've got a super allergic kid having surgery at the age of eight years say, look, there is a chance they could need further surgery when their septum has developed and they've finished their rugby career and their sinuses have grown. Um, but we certainly can't stop those things from happening. But the mm. risk of them needing surgery would only be massively reduced by something done at that age. But we do a very age-specific and respectful operation on the nose, so we're not going to do a radical surgery. We're not going to, you know, we just do something to get them breathing properly. And mm. it, makes, it gives them years and years of benefit. But, um, yes, look, some of these because remember their sinuses aren't even fully grown at the age of eight so there's a lot of growth still to come. Mm. Mm. Um, I think you know as for another episode as we discussed um, you would talk about maybe allergies because um, I think in your previous episode did you say the incidence of a deviated septum is about 75%? Yeah, yeah exactly yeah, so, so deviated septum is a very common thing mm. in, the, in our population it's just a facial variant so if we do a scan of someone's sinuses there's huge amounts of facial asymmetry and a septal deviation is just one of those when you add allergy to that, that's when you get the swelling of the inferior turbans and then it becomes pathological. Yeah. 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 
Okay. Yeah. That would be a whole other hour mm, some other time. It yeah. would, wouldn't yeah. it? Interesting. Okay, so then long-term follow-up. Yeah, so look, it is important for long-term follow-up. So a lot of the kids that have two to young age will have an atopic history. Mm. So it is important to always say to parents, look, you know, your child's doing really well at the moment. You've got to keep an eye on their allergies. And I suppose with parents, if they watch their kids sleep, they'll, that's long-term follow-up. Yeah. And, and if things change, then they need to be reviewed. And I think it is important just to talk about the risks of not treating sleep apnea in kids. Mm. And so um, I know there's been a lot of listeners out there that say that they would never consider surgery for their kids for this sort of thing, and that's totally understandable. But the, I suppose the things to think about is that if your kids are not sleeping well at night, they're going to have increased risk of behavioural problems. And the symptoms of sleep apnea in kids and, and ADD are actually mm. very overlapping. So all kids with history of ADD or ADHD their parents need to closely look at their, their sleep. Mm. Um, also, we know that their neurocognitive development can be affected, school performance can be affected. And in a small number of kids with a really severe sleep disorder and breathing, um, they can actually have less secretion of growth hormone. So there's some very runty three-year-olds out there that have got sleep apnea. And uh, because they're not getting the growth hormone is secreted in the deepest realms of sleep, Mm. So if the kids are not getting to deepest realms of sleep, they're not going to get growth hormone. And the number of kids who we might do their adenoids and tonsils at the age of three, and they come back two years later and they've grown about a yeah. foot, and they've eaten their parents out of house and home. It's not uncommon. Yeah, again, another reason to get onto some of this management stuff, whatever that looks like, early, exactly. right? So to get these changes but, but, in, yeah. But definitely growth hormone would only be in the, in the more severe end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of fussy eaters out there in the <laughs> because they're not, they're not sleeping well. Yeah, so they're the main things I think with with, with not treating the condition. Mm. Yeah, um, and even like you touched on before, and and maybe this is more for a, a, another episode, but that speech delay as well um, with the formation of their jaw, and you know, there's a whole yeah. host of different symptoms in that realm as well. Absolutely, which you guys see a lot of. Mm. Yeah, look, there's there's a lot of you know topics for the next episode, Bill. I mean, you know, your um, ideas of um, allergies, ear infections, yeah, function. I mean, that's a big area, isn't it? Yeah, particularly allergies. I think that's a, a huge one. Allergies, it's yeah. growing, so it, massively. We could, we could dive into that yeah. another time for and sure. In terms of epidemiology, you know, do you feel that the incidences of, um, you know, tonsillitis and you know just mouth breathing, do you feel that's um, increased since you've been in practice, Bill? I, I reckon. Um, I think the adenoid tonsil rate rate of illness is probably fairly similar. Okay. But I think the allergies are getting worse mm-hmm. at younger age and there's more of it. Mm. Yeah. And, and I may be skewed because most of my patients have got allergies. But I think it is, I mean, it, I heard someone say recently, you know, when they used to be in the tuck shop, you know. Yeah. Like, was that you, Lily? It was you, <laughs> yeah. of course. Yeah, he oh, talked about the God. tuck shop and, the, and there was one child who yeah. had an allergy and then you went back 10 years later and there was like 50 kids mm. up there that couldn't yeah. receive peanuts. And yeah. You know, was that you? Really? Yeah, it yeah. was, it was. And yeah, also sorry. that last episode too, you know, you did mention things like um, if 15% of the population got onto organic food, um, you know, mm. the world would change yeah. really, you know. It's such a small number really. It is, yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, with allergies, we'll, we'll talk about that next time. But, mm. you know, I'm not an expert on the gut side of things, but I know that there's big issues with our diet. Yeah. We know that if our gut's inflamed, our body's inflamed. And, and um, you know, what we've... I read an interesting thing recently where when people fast, 
the symptoms of allergic rhinitis reduce. Mm, yeah. So do symptoms of autoimmune disease. Mm, yeah. So it just shows mm. you what a driver food is, of, gut health is of general health. Yeah. Okay. Definitely yeah. next episode. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait for that one. Thanks, Bill. So, um, do you think we've covered everything yeah. that you wanted to know? Yeah. Well, I think that's good. Yeah. yeah. It's a good broad brush. Yeah. And I think it, it gives parents things to think about, things to observe, things yep. to measure, yep. yeah. things to work on. And also yeah. to not be scared of um, going down the tonsillectomy and adenectomy um, uh, pathway okay. because I think a lot of people yeah. are quite uh, nervous about well, surgery. it's only a small percentage of kids yeah. that need that. A lot of them can be managed mm. medically. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, but it needs to be it needs to be assessed. Yeah. And we never force parents to do anything. We give them options and honest opinions and mm. And that's all you can do as a practitioner, just the same as you guys yep. do. Absolutely. Also, all the risk of not having um, proper breathing. I mean, I think that should be. Yeah, that, that should yeah, be something told. They yeah. need to weigh it all up. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Well, I guess to finish up with, I'm going to um, add into our show notes where people can find you, and I'm also going to add in um, that TED talk that we mentioned as well. If that's right, yeah. I'll add that into our show notes. So I don't know if you want to briefly. Yeah, look, touch I'll, on I'll that. give you my three little things. Yeah, please. So um, the first of my three little things is that I think um, as parents, um, I think we all need to spend more time playing with our kids, mm. looking at our kids and teaching our kids to look at the world. And um, an example recently, I was coming out of the SCG, watched the Sydney Swans, mm-hmm. there's a beautiful sunset and we're walking out you know, through the park and I, there's a little three-year-old there his iPad mm. and, and he's just looking at that and the, the beautiful world around him and I felt like, felt like grabbing the iPad and saying, mate, have a look at that sunset. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. And, and I'd, I'd really encourage our listeners to listen to a, one of the most popular TED Talks of 2021. Believe it or not, it's written, it was done by a girl by the name of Molly Wright. She's seven years of age and she did a TED Talk in July 2021 talking about the importance of playing peekaboo with our kids and the benefits of looking and interacting with our kids mm. and even just with showing your kids look at the you know look at the sunset look at the bird in the tree and developing their long vision yeah you know so that's my first little thing mm. um, my second little thing is that I think we need to monitor our child's sleep yeah. so we spend so much time giving them swimming lessons and stressing about their NAPLAN results <laughs> and getting their guitar lessons done and taking them to gymnastics but if we're not looking at our children's sleep, we're missing a pillar of health and a pillar of energy yep. and a pillar of concentration. Yep. And so I think now they're all going to have the tools to observe their kids' sleep. So that's mm. my second little thing. Excellent. And my third little thing is to immerse your children in nature. And so, and we'll talk about more of this in the future with allergies, but we have a symbiotic relationship with nature, which means that every day our bodies are exposed to 10 to the power of 15 viruses, bacteria, fungi. And I think COVID has brought this myth that we, we need to live in a sterile environment. Mm. And I see children having hand sanitizer applied to them 15 times a day, and that's a potent chemical. Yeah. And we actually, our microbiome and our bodies are used to, from the moment we come out of the birth canal, we've been playing in dirt, we've been crawling in the garden, we've been swimming in lakes and the ocean, and that creates a healthy relationship with our external world mm. and from a microbiome and immune perspective it's so beneficial mm. so I encourage parents now we're moving out of COVID to get their kids plenty of muddy pools around in Sydney at the moment <laughs> get them crawling yeah. around in it out in the sunshine mm. um, and I think that's wonderful for their health yeah 
I agree. Well, I will pop, um, yeah, that TED Talk into our show notes so our listeners can find that really easily because, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was really, really It was one of the most watched TED Talks of 2021 by a seven-year-old girl. Quite incredible. Oh, it was actually, it makes you cry, really. Yeah. We we have parents in here breastfeeding and the mum's on her mobile phone. I'm thinking, that kid needs you to make some eye contact. Exactly. What are you doing? You can't know someone unless you can look them in the eye and you need to teach our kids to do it so they can do it to their friends. Yeah. You know, yeah, and unfortunately, with gaming and all this green time, I'm seeing more and more adolescents that can't look you in the eye, and it's a, it's, it's not good yeah. for anyone. No, the dopamine hit. Isn't mm. it? Yeah, yeah. And so that's mm. really important. Yeah. Well, that was wonderful, Bill. Thank you very much no worries, for guys. jumping Great on. To have a chat. Always. Look forward to next time. Yeah, yeah me fantastic. too. Quick disclaimer, these episodes are not intended to replace help, treatment or advice from your healthcare professionals. The information in today's podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not designed to diagnose or treat any conditions. This is just a friendly reminder that we do not know you or your child or those around you and therefore do not know your specific needs. Please seek guidance from your healthcare professionals surrounding your concerns.